Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. So as we look at Jesus, if you mark your Bibles, mark the fact that it is the Spirit of God who led Jesus into this encounter in the wilderness. But the next question that we need to think about is, what reason would God the Spirit have for leading God the Son, the other member of the Trinity, into this place where he can be tempted? I mean, doesn't Scripture tell us that God doesn't tempt anyone? Absolutely. Scripture is perfectly clear. God doesn't tempt. In in fact, he, He is most certainly not tempting Jesus here. But He is leading Jesus to the place where Satan can tempt Him. Well, you might be thinking, well, well, that's just a matter of semantics. If God is leading him for Satan can tempt him, then God is tempting him. No, it's not. You see, God never tempts anyone. It's against his character to do that. As James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 13, James chapter 1 and verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he he himself tempt anyone. James makes perfectly clear that God never God never tempts anyone, but God does test us. God does test, and that's what he's doing with Jesus. He's led him to this wilderness experience where although the enemy, where Satan, will tempt him, God is really using it to test Jesus. Now, you might again suggest that that's just a matter of semantics. Test, temptation, there's no difference you're wrong. There's a huge difference. A test is not the same thing as a temptation. It's not the same. Well, how can that be, you might ask? Well, well, the primary goal, it all has to do with a goal. The primary goal of a temptation is to get you to fail. The primary point of a temptation is failure. But the primary point, the primary goal of a test is success. It has to do with enabling you to succeed. A test is intended to show you where you stand, to give you a measure of how far you've progressed, to encourage you to strengthen what needs to be strengthened, and to take heart in areas where you're strong in, to keep you pressing forward to the ultimate goal, to prove you. To prove you. As a kid, I make no bones about it, I hated tests. I was not a test taker. I hated tests. But I do believe as, as, as I've aged and I've looked back on it and, and now having gone through college courses and everything else, the, the, the reason I hated tests wasn't just because I was, you know, we all get test anxiety, but beyond that, it was bigger. It's because I didn't understand the purpose of a test. I didn't understand the purpose of it. I thought that my teachers were just trying to do me in. <laughs> When in reality, they weren't trying to do me in. They were trying to help me. They wanted to show me how much I had learned and to help me gauge my progress and to make the corrections where corrections were needed so that I could overcome those weak areas and ultimately succeed. And that's how it is for all of us in regard to how God uses tests. He leads us into the wilderness where Satan might try to tempt us. But he uses that temptation 
to test us and to prove us, helping us to gauge our progress and to learn about our weaknesses so that he can work the corrections in us and lead us to greater spiritual success and victory. He uses the fiery darts that the enemy is shooting at us to destroy us and to cause us to fail. But God takes those fiery darts that the enemy is shooting at us to show us how far we've come as we face them. Now listen, I I think this is critical that you and I understand this and that we get the bigger picture because if we don't, when those times of testing come, we're going to respond wrongly to them and and, and we're going to respond wrongly to what's happening and in the process, we're going to fall prey to the enemy's temptations. But if we realize what God's doing, realizing that he's ultimately in control, that he's led us there, that he's using it all for our benefit, it's going to make a big difference in how we respond to it all. I think James goes and makes that perfectly clear in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. James chapter 1, you're going to think this is my favorite passage because I read it a lot. It is one of my favorite passages because I'm a pastor of a church of people who are constantly in trials and temptations. I just, I've I've never been in a place where I've seen so many people dealing with so many heavy things. And and I keep giving this verse as, as encouragement because it is. But listen to what James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, trials, difficulties, temptations, all of it. When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, oh, did you hear the shift there? The testing, it's a trial that God is using as a test, that the testing, here's the purpose of the test, of your faith produces patience. The purpose of the test isn't to, to produce failure. The purpose of the test is to produce patience. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work. Perfection, God perfecting us, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What an awesome couple of verses. Yes, the enemy tempts us. Yes, the the situations become awful trials in our lives, and yet God wants to use those to bring about the test so that he can perfect us, so that he can strengthen us, so that we can succeed. That's what he wants, so that we'll succeed. Now, back to the temptation that that Jesus is about to face in the wilderness. God, God isn't using it all in the same way that he uses these things in our lives. He's not using it to test Jesus in order to prove anything to Jesus. Why would I say that? Because Jesus is the Son of God, right? He's sinless. He's God himself in the flesh. He's sinless. There's nothing in Jesus that needs to be tested as there is in us. He's rock solid spiritually. And here's where we need to address that age-old question that everybody asks, because it's important to the answer as to why God is allowing Jesus to be tempted like this. Could Jesus have succumbed to Satan's temptations? Could he have been a real life, for all you Star Wars fans, I do this rarely, but I couldn't help it with this one, could he have been like a real-life Anakin Skywalker, you know? A divine Jedi who who turns to the dark side and becomes the Darth Vader of the Bible. Sorry, that's kind of pithy, isn't it? (laughs) Or whatever the word would be. But you get the picture. A lot of people think that that could have been the case. Is that the case? 
you know, some people suggest that since Jesus came in human flesh, that that was certainly possible, that he could have stumbled just as men stumbled, that he could have succumbed to the temptation of the enemy and in the process become even darker than Satan himself. And yet others point to the fact that Jesus was also 100% God. If he was 100% God, that since James 1 tells us that God cannot be tempted, it was impossible for Jesus to stumble and give in to temptation, right? So which view is correct? Could he have fallen because he was a man? Or because he was 100% God, does that mean he couldn't have fallen? Well, my answer is both. Both are true. You see, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself and became vulnerable like us. And yet at the same time, even though he emptied himself, he never stopped being God. He never stopped being God. Therefore, he was unable to sin. So although his humanity made it possible for him to sin, his divinity made it impossible for him to sin. And I know that that sounds, that tension sounds completely confusing to our human minds, but I suggest that this is the reality that is given to us in Scripture. And like I said with our discussion last week on the triune nature of God, there are simply things about God that go beyond our human comprehension. And we need to simply accept by faith what it is the Scriptures reveal to us about him, even though we can't necessarily comprehend it all. Maybe God will one day explain it to us when we're sitting around the eternal campfire. And I'm not talking about hell. I'm talking about when we're just sitting around with him and we're, we're getting to fellowship with him. Maybe he'll explain it to us and we'll get it when we're with him in the kingdom. I don't know. Maybe it just won't matter anymore. But for now, we stand by faith knowing that both were very possible. But the question, I think the bigger question that we do need to ask is, if it was impossible for Jesus to give in to the temptation, or if it was impossible, I should say, for Jesus to give in to temptation, then why did God lead him into it? Why was he being tempted by Satan? Or better question is, why was he being tested by God? What does it prove if there's nothing to prove to Jesus himself? If Jesus is sinless, can't enter into sin, what's there to prove to the sinless Son of God? Ah, the answer is in the proving. The answer is found in the proving. Not, it's about not proving anything to Jesus, but it's about proving Jesus to us. May I say that again? The test, that je- the temptations that will Jesus will face, the test that God will be using them for, will not be to prove anything to Jesus, but to prove Jesus to us, to you and to me. God was using this situation to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he is and that he was able to do what it is he says he came to do. It was about proving that Jesus had the power in him to defeat and to overcome sin and to ultimately deliver us from it. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus referred to over and over again as the second Adam. The first Adam was the the man in the garden who failed and brought sin into this world. He's the one who represented all of humanity, who was weak and easily tempted, and thus he introduced sin into the world by failing to contain his own sinful lust, his own sinful self-will. But now here in this passage, Jesus, the second Adam, he's going to succeed where the first Adam failed. And God ordained this test 
not to prove it to Jesus, but to prove to us that this Adam was strong enough and pure enough to reverse what the first Adam introduced. By proving Jesus, he is showing us that Jesus, the second Adam, can be trusted to deliver us from the bondage of sin that the first Adam enslaved us to. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. Jesus was, in all points, tempted, as Scripture tells us, as we are, and yet without sin. In fact, Jesus, the second Adam, will be tested with the same three temptations, basically, which the first Adam succumbed to. The, the same three temptations that I believe that are behind all the temptations that you and I face in this life. The temptations that are mentioned, the things that, 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 that are about us that cause us to be tempted. First John chapter two, verse 16. First John two, 16 tells us what they are. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, that insatiable hunger for forbidden fruit, for the very thing that we can't have, just like Adam in the garden. Eat from all the trees of the garden. We always pass by that. We focus just like he did on the one he couldn't eat for. Eat from all the trees of the garden. But that one in the middle, stay away from that one. It's not good for you. Which one they go for? Guys, the flesh was craving what it couldn't have. The flesh was craving that fruit that it couldn't have. The lust of the eyes, that appealing nature of that fruit that we see and desire that we shouldn't have, that thing we focus on, and then the pride of life, the tendency to reach for and take that fruit because we want to be the determiners of our own lives and our own destinies, wanting to be our own gods, see? And now, here, just as Adam, he, he succumbed to all of those. He succumbed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And now here in the wilderness where Jesus has been led by God, the Holy Spirit, he will be confronted with those same three temptations that are common to all men. But unlike the first Adam, and unlike all of us fallen human beings, he will prove himself to us by overcoming these things. So let's look at the temptations and let's see how Jesus handles them. Because I think there's a lot for us to learn in this for our own lives as well, so that we'll be victorious in the test. Yep, we're going to see how Jesus proves himself in the test to us, but we'll also learn how we can be victorious in the test by learning some things from them. Let's look at verse three. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Physiologists tell us that after four to five days of not eating, that the feeling of hunger begins to subside. But they also tell us that when the feelings of hunger begin to return, that that's a bad place to be. It means that it's a warning sign that you're approaching starvation. And if you don't eat soon, you're going to die. And this gives us a good indicator of Jesus' condition at this point when Satan begins to tempt him with this specific temptation. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's beyond hunger at this point. Starvation is beginning to set in. And what does Satan tempt him with? Hey, Jesus, look at these stones. <laughs> look at these stones. Don't they look like bread? You know, in Israel, there are stones that are about the size and shape of a loaf of bread. And Satan's using these stones to conjure up an image of bread in Jesus' near-starvation mind. Hey, Jesus, look at these stones. Don't they look like bread? And you're hungry, right? 
You feel that hunger now? It's rising up. I know you've been doing good, Jesus, on this fast. That hunger's coming back. Jesus, man, if you don't eat soon, you're going to die, dude. Yeah, bread. You know, you know what, Jesus? You can turn them. You're God in the flesh. Surely you can turn them into real bread. Look, they look like it. Just say the word and they'll become bread. And you can satisfy your own hunger. God the Father obviously doesn't care or you wouldn't be hungry right now. He's not going to care what you do because it's a legitimate need. Fill that legitimate need, Jesus. See, Satan is appealing to the lust of the flesh. But he's doing it in a really, really deceptive way, which is something he will do with every de- temptation that Jesus will face. And quite frankly, it's the way he does it with us as well. First, he's appealing to Jesus by appealing to his flesh, by addressing, and I want to say this clearly, by addressing a legitimate fleshly need. Hunger, food is a legitimate fleshly need. But what he's doing is he's perverting it by trying to get Jesus to fulfill it in ways that are wrong for him to fulfill it. Hunger is a legitimate fleshly need, as are many things in life, but just because it's a legitimate need doesn't make it right for Jesus or for any of us to fulfill that need in a way that runs contrary to what God wants from us and for us. The Holy Spirit, think about this, the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into this situation, and as such, Jesus knew that it was the Father's will for him to fast and to go without meeting that legitimate need for this season of time. And most certainly, he knew that he wasn't to meet that need in such a self-determining, self-serving way. But what Satan is doing is he's trying to get Jesus to a place where, where he'll place his own needs above the Father's will and, and, and he'll, that he'll take matters into his own hands to meet those needs. Here's where Satan comes at us even today, where he comes at, at God's people today. He tempts us, and not just God's people, but he's tempting the world out there through legitimate needs in many cases. But what he does is he tries to get us to fulfill those needs in ways that are contrary to the Father's will and through our own power and resources. Take money, for example. Money is a legitimate need that we all have for survival in this present world. We need money to pay bills. We need money to buy food. We need money to buy clothing. We need money to keep a roof over our heads. There is nothing wrong with money. The scriptures do not even make money an issue in the sense of it being wrong to have or to need. It's a legitimate need for living our lives in this world. God recognizes that. But God has also prescribed what our attitude should be about money and how we're to gain it and how we're to handle it. And most of all, he has allocated to us the money, however much or however little, for the various seasons of life that we're in, and he's asked us to trust him. And therein becomes the point of attack for Satan, especially when we need more money. Satan or his minions come to us, and and they appeal to our flesh. They say, look at these stones. Don't they look like coins? (laughs) You can turn them into coins. Just don't report everything on your taxes this year. That government doesn't need that. They got enough money already. They waste it anyhow. Well, that's true. <laughs> take a few dollars. If you don't want to do that, take a few dollars out of the cash drawer when nobody's looking at work or fudge the books. Fudge the books. And on and on and on it goes. Who's going to know? 
Who's going to know? And God isn't going to care how you get that legitimate need met. It's a legitimate need. And it's not being met in other ways. Just do it. Take it into your own hands. Do it. Meet it. He takes a legitimate need, whatever that may be, and he twists it and he perverts it, getting us to fulfill it through our own power, through our own resources, and in ways that place that need above the Father's will for our lives and in contradiction to his word that he's expressed to us. And when we buy into that deceptive lie, we exalt ourselves above God, becoming gods of our own lives. There's a lot of gods, small g, running around in this world today. It's a lot of gods, small g, running around in the body of Christ today. You know, the examples could go on. I mean... They go on and on and on. But when we have these legitimate needs that we're confronted with, well, sex is an example. You know, that's a legitimate human need. And yet look how the enemy twists and tempts even God's people to fulfill that need in ways that are completely contrary to what God has told us in the Scriptures, in His Word. I mean, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 is the clearest statement of how God views that need being met. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And yet the enemy comes and says, it's a legitimate need. God knows you have that need. Meet it in the way that you want to meet it. Fulfill that need. The list could go on, but this is how Satan works, folks. Second, note this. And it's linked to the first tactic. Satan is trying to get Jesus to question the Father's goodness and provision. He's trying to get him to, con- to question the Father's goodness and provision. The Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness and into this 40-day period of fasting, and yet to tempt a man with food who had fasted for 40 days seems almost unfair and cruel. But the Father allowed it because he knew Jesus could, could, could endure it. And, and, and it was necessary for Jesus to do this for the purpose that God was working out in Jesus' life and in, in our lives and in, in the plan of redemption. And still in the midst of this, in this moment, along comes Satan appealing to Jesus' legitimate need for food by trying to get him to take matters into his own hands and providing for himself. And why wouldn't Jesus do this? I mean, how fair is it for the Father to, to allow temptation to, not, not only to bring Jesus into this circumstance, but to allow temptation like this to come at him? What kind of God would allow such a thing when, when Jesus was doing the right thing spiritually? Can you imagine what else the enemy must have been whispering into Jesus' head in this moment? God doesn't care about you. He's not going to provide for you. He brought you out here. Provide for yourself, Jesus. It's kind of like Adam in the Garden and Eve, wasn't it? Did God really say? You know, and he knew that if you ate this, you'd be like him. Provide for yourself. Take it. Yet by giving in and turning the bread to stones, which was most certainly within Jesus' ability to do as God the Son, he would have essentially been denying both the goodness of God and the provision of God as he looked to himself for his own welfare and provision. That would have been spiritually catastrophic as it would have broken the bond that exists in the Trinity as Jesus would have exalted himself above the Godhead itself and become God of his own life, become his own universal God, apart from the other members of the Trinity, you see, that comprise the one God. They would have broken it apart. And folks, 
It's spiritually catastrophic when we ignore God's goodness and provision and take matters into our own hands as it breaks the bond of trust that God desires for us to have in our relationship with him as his children. When we take matters into our own hands to meet our legitimate needs in ways that are contrary to what God wants from us, what he's expressed to us in his word, when we begin to trust more in what we want in meeting our needs than we do in God, we begin to question the goodness of God. We begin to question the provision of God. And in the process, we break apart the relationship that we have with God because we become gods of our own lives. We exalt ourselves above him. I can provide. I can be. I can do. I, 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 I. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> and sadly, we might even try to spiritualize doing this at times, convincing ourselves by taking matters into our own hands. It, it, it shows initiative that God will somehow bless and honor what we're doing. We give ourselves over to that old and spiritually perverse adage. Please, those of you who attend here, don't ever let me hear you say this because you'll get a response from me. Well, you know, God helps them who helps themselves. That's not true. <laughs> Biblically, that's not true. He does not. At least not when the way we go about it and the reason we're doing it has to do with a lack of firm trust in him and in the provision that he's, he's promised to make for us. Look, I'm not taking away from initiative and stepping out by faith and doing things. I mean, God's given us skills and abilities not to be sitting on and say, well, if God wants me to do it, you know, he'll tell me. No, there are things that we do, but we don't do it with the attitude that, you know what, I'm going to take this for myself. He's, God helps them who helps themselves. No. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.